Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and in this episode, we are bringing you a sample of one of the featured presentations at the recent conference of AMTE, the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, held in Orlando, Florida. This year, the prestigious Judith Jacobs Lecture was given by Denise Spangler, a professor and dean of the College of Education from the University of Georgia. Dr. Spangler has been a guest on the podcast before, back in episode 1703, when she was talking about the compendium chapter on core teaching practices. But at the AMTE conference, she spoke generally about her work in research as well as teaching and service. Her lecture was titled, Fundamental Commitments of My Work as a Mathematics Teacher Educator. And I thank my colleague Chuck Munter for recording the presentation, and I thank the AMTE board for allowing us to share this with you. And it's my understanding that the AMTE website will eventually be hosting the slides from Denise's presentation. So when that is available, I will link to it in the show notes. But let's go now to Denise Spangler so you can hear her thoughts. What follows has been lightly edited to remove the interactive portions where Denise had the AMTE attendees discuss some of the points among themselves. Thank you, Judith. It's a tremendous honor to be asked to give the Judith E. Jacobs lecture. And I want to thank Randy for the invitation and thank Judith for the introduction. There are lots of people sitting in this audience and other people not here who could and should be standing up here. So I want to be clear that my being up here is a reflection of what a wonderful community of mathematics educators we have. Many people who are senior in the field who have mentored me, many of whom have given this lecture in the past, including two members of my own doctoral committee. Um, Many of my peers who I grew up with in the field who have been my critical friends and my encouragers. I've met the next wave of professionals in our field through the STAR program. And I've worked with many undergraduate students, teachers, and doctoral students, all of whom have shaped my thinking about the field and have played in some part into the ideas that I'm going to talk about tonight. And I think that professional organizations like AMTE, NCTM, ASA, PMENA, and others are really to be treasured institutions in our field. They bring us together, they give us opportunities to build professional friendships, collaborations, bounce ideas off of each other, and get new ideas from each other. And that's how our field grows and matures and improves. So tonight, I am going to talk about something that I hope will challenge all of us to think a little bit about our practice and our work in the field. You know when you sit down to write a talk and you go pull up the file to see what it was you said six months ago you were going to do? And you go, hmm, I kind of wish I could have that back. Well, I had that experience a few weeks ago when I sat down to do this. Fortunately, the change I want to make is a fairly small one. I just want to take the S off of commitment. Because as I sat down and tried to parse out these things I was thinking about as commitments, I decided that they all stem from one big idea. So I'm going to talk about that one big idea so you can just scratch off the S in your program. (laughs) So even if Randy Phillip hadn't been president of AMTE and he hadn't been the one to invite me to give this talk, I'd be starting with something that I learned from Randy. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to spend six weeks at San Diego State University. And while I was there, oops, shout out in the back, San Diego State. <laughs> while I was there, I got to sit in on some of Randy's methods classes and his research project meetings and spent a lot of time sitting around talking to Randy and other folks there. And one image, two images really, from one of 
Randy's Methods classes, has stuck with me for well over 20 years. Randy showed this image, or something like it, to his pre-service teachers. And he talked about how when we teach mathematics, when teachers teach mathematics, they are often looking at children and children's mathematical thinking through the lens of the mathematics that we know to be correct. This leads to a posture of judging students' mathematical thinking against canonical mathematics, which generally means judging it as correct or incorrect. Then he showed his students an image like this, in which the teacher attempts to see the mathematics that the student is seeing in that moment. This approach assumes that whatever the child is thinking makes sense to that child. It's in some way logical based on what that child understands at this moment. And it's the teacher's role to understand how things look to that student and why they make sense. Then, after the teacher understands what the student is seeing, the teacher can be much more effective in asking questions, posing a different task, changing the numbers in the task, or taking other action that will help the child leverage their thinking to make sense of the mathematical idea. Note that in both of these approaches, the goal is still the same. We still want the child ultimately to learn correct mathematics. It's the focus and the path that are different. One sees the child as a capable mathematical thinker who can build on that thinking, and the other places all the power in the mathematics and the teacher. Another key difference in these two images is implicit in this image. And the second one is curiosity on the part of the teacher. In a recent book chapter, Randy and John Siegfried and Ava Thanheiser talked about this curiosity as intellectual humility. The teacher has to humble themselves to say, I don't know what this is like for you. I want to experience this the way that you're experiencing it. And this is a stance that leads to the child feeling valued and at the center of the learning instead of mathematics being the centered object. So although these ideas captivated me 20 some odd years ago, I'm guessing this is old news to pretty much everybody in the room. This picture gets at the heart of what we all fundamentally believe about the teaching and learning of mathematics, and it shapes our thinking about teacher education. I'll just say, when I asked Randy if he still had copies of these, and back then they were probably on acetate on an overhead projector, <laughs> he did send me some images that weren't quite the ones I was looking for. And I took them to the graphic designer, the, one of the perks of being dean is you have access to things like graphic designers. <laughs> and I said to her, do you know what screen beans are? And she looked at me like I had three heads. These little people were our early versions of Microsoft clip art that back in those days were called screen beans. Apparently anyone under the age of about 40 has no idea what those are. <laughs> These look a little Pinocchio-ish for my taste, but if you Google screen beans, they'll come up. They're a thing. They're still out there. What I want to challenge us to do tonight is to think about what happens if we take this image up one level. What happens if we replace that teacher on the left with teacher educators? And what happens if we replace that student with the teachers we work with? And throughout this talk, I'm going to use the word teachers, but I mean to be inclusive of pre-service teachers, in-service teachers, mathematics coaches, doctoral students who are developing as teacher educators. But we're teacher educators working with teachers around ideas of mathematics teaching and learning. 
And this represents the fundamental commitment that I want to talk about tonight. I strive to see teachers and their thinking and their actions about mathematics and about pedagogy in the same way that we urge teachers to view students' mathematical thinking. Teachers are sense makers. Just like the kid who says 28, 29, 2010, pre-service and in-service teachers' knowledge and past experiences shape their actions in the classroom. Their beliefs are a result of their lived experiences. And just like that teacher in the second picture, we as teacher educators need to demonstrate the curiosity and the intellectual humility that allows us to understand how something a teacher did or said came from a place that made sense to them. Pre-service teachers come to us wanting to be good teachers. Do some of them come with naive ideas about what this is going to take? Do some of them come thinking they already know everything there is to know about teaching? Do some of them come thinking that the only place they're going to learn to teach is in their mentor teacher's classroom? Yes, absolutely. I don't believe teachers get up in the morning and go to work thinking they want to do a bad job teaching mathematics. Teachers really want to make a difference in students' lives. Do they sometimes teach in ways that don't build conceptual understanding or positive dispositions about mathematics? Do they sometimes not use technology effectively? Do they not see and elicit the brilliance in their diverse students? Yes, absolutely. But rolling our eyes and complaining and frustration doesn't change those things, and it potentially does damage. Imagine if a teacher rolled their eyes when a child said 28, 29, 2010. That opportunity to have an impact on that child is gone. Our job is to realize that every teacher has traveled a unique path as a learner and a teacher that has led to the moment that they are in now. We need to make sense of that, we need to help them make sense of it, and then introduce those perturbations that will help them grow, just like we do with students. I think most of us adhere to this image when we're working with teachers on content, but it is frighteningly easy to slip into that first image when we're talking about pedagogy with teachers. We can be awfully quick to criticize teachers when they offer a directed telling response to student struggles, or their blindness to their privilege, or their desire for a recipe for teaching algebra effectively. We're usually not critical to them or in front of them. We generally engage in this teacher bashing with one another. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're not entitled to be frustrated or even sometimes a little amused by things that teachers do. I'm not saying we shouldn't vent to each other sometimes, and I'm not saying, definitely not saying we should put on rose-colored glasses and pretend that everything's fine in the world of mathematics teaching and learning. We're all here because we want to improve mathematics teaching and learning. And to do that, we have to be able to articulate the problems we see. What I'm saying is that we need to raise the level of our public discourse about pre-service and in-service teachers. I'm also saying that just like students, teachers come to us with varied experiences, beliefs, and knowledge, and we need to differentiate our instruction, just like we ask teachers to do with students. Rather than expecting the same activity, the same article, the same video to lead to the same results for all teachers, we need to be equipped with multiple ways to teach teachers and not get frustrated or give up when our first try doesn't work the same for everyone. For example, I hear a lot of frustration around attempts to educate teachers about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and not just in mathematics education. As a dean, I hear it all across my college. All, all of the helping professions, including speech-language pathology and kinesiology, as well as the educator preparation disciplines. 
But I don't always hear a lot of conversation that acknowledging that just like us, teachers are in different places with respect to their own identity development, their critical consciousness, and their understanding of privilege. Similarly, teachers are in different places with respect to student-centered teaching, questioning, technology, representations, pretty much any other topic you want to name. So we need to get better about differentiating our instruction, just like we advocate for teachers to differentiate their instruction. In short, we need to consciously respect teachers and respect where they are and how they got there. We need to avoid deficit approaches in our thinking about teachers, and we need to stop teacher bashing. We've all seen how teachers are treated by the public, by the media, and by policymakers. And what's ironic to me is that when we hear other people bashing teachers, we get upset and we are quick to come to their rescue. But we often don't hear it when we do it ourselves. And I think it's because it's much more subtle as a part of our discourse. But not only can we not play into that teacher bashing discourse, we actually have to help illuminate the complicated work that teachers do for others. So I'm gonna turn my attention now to ways that I try to enact this commitment in my own teaching, research, and service, and then I'll talk about the field and specifically AMT. But before I start talking about my own work, I wanna make really clear that I am not claiming that I am a saint. I am not claiming that I am perfect 100% of the time. In fact, I'm gonna tell you a story about a really big exception to this perspective that is fairly recent for me. So my goal in giving you examples is just to help you think about this, not to say that my work is a model for anything, but to get you thinking about places where our discourse around teachers might need to change. So if we start with teaching, I like to use artifacts of practice in my teaching. Videos, student work, teachers' lesson plans, teachers' reflections on their teaching. And I try to be really explicit with my pre-service teachers or classroom teachers before I bring up those artifacts of practice about how we're going to talk about the teachers and the students. Similarly, with field experiences, when my students come back from the field and we're debriefing experiences they've had, I try to be real explicit about the fact that even if they've been out there for two weeks or two full days a week for a semester, that and artifacts of practice represent a snapshot of a moment in time. We don't know what's led up to that for those, that teacher or those students. We don't know what comes after it. We don't know enough about the teachers and the students to be making a lot of judgments. So I try to ask my students, pre-service teachers, to unpack what assumptions are behind their comments about what they might see in a video or in a lesson plan or might see in a mentor teacher's classroom and to be really thoughtful about the language that they're using. I try, when they make statements, to, to twist them to a posture of curiosity and intellectual humility. Let's ask questions. One of the ways that I see teacher educators falling into this is the way that we talk about mentor teachers. When we sit around and talk about placements for our students, we often talk about mentor teachers in ways that are sometimes not flattering. Um, I can remember as a pre-service teacher, being told that I should never talk about a child in a way that I wouldn't want their parent to hear. And I think about that about pre-service, about mentor teachers that we work with. Would I want that teacher's child or partner or their principal to hear me talking about a mentor teacher that way? We absolutely have to make good placements for our student teachers. We absolutely have to make some valid value judgments about teachers, but we can be a little more careful how we talk about mentor teachers. I try to be thoughtful about the articles 
I have my students read, whether they're undergraduate students, classroom teachers, or doctoral students in classes. And if I use an article that has some of what I would consider teacher bashing in it, I try to talk about it explicitly. Either why I'm using that article for other purposes, or why that particular, how we might think about that particular piece of the article. I try to work closely with my teaching assistants as we plan instruction, we deliver instruction, we debrief instruction, we grade papers, to think about how we're talking about pre-service teachers. It's really easy to get halfway through a pile of papers that you've graded and make some derogatory comments about where pre-service teachers might be in their thinking. And to reflect back on what have we done in class that's led up to this? What else is happening in other classes that might be leading to this? What are they seeing in the schools that might be leading to whatever problem it is we're seeing on this assignment that we've given to them? So again, it all comes back to this curiosity. Okay, so this isn't the, the role, the answer that we wanted, but what led to this happening? All right, you've got three minutes to turn and talk to somebody near you about other things you would add to this list. What about your teaching practice in whatever context it takes place would help you take this posture toward the people you work with? Next, let's think a little bit about research and scholarship. And I intentionally used both of those words because I, in scholarship, I'm thinking about things, presentations and publications for a practitioner audience as well. So in my own writing, I try not to write anything I wouldn't want my participants to read. That doesn't mean I'm not critical about what they've done. It doesn't mean I don't use work in the field, literature, theoretical lenses to critique and position what they've done. But I try to write about it in a way that is respectful and explains how they got to where they are so I wouldn't be uncomfortable with them reading it. I also try to share my data analysis with my participants. Now, I'm not always able to do that, but one of my all-time favorite data collection experiences is a teacher who I studied for four years, from her pre-service years into her induction years and on into her fourth year of teaching, was and still is to this day an enigma to me because at the beginning, I would have said that she's not somebody I wanted teaching mathematics to my child if I had one. She had... She was, she was competent mathematically, but she didn't like it and she didn't want to teach it. And in the space of a semester or a semester and a half, she completely changed her teaching practices. Now, she did not change her core beliefs about mathematics as a discipline. She still doesn't like it. But she changed <laughs> the way she was able to view the math, school mathematics that she was teaching to students to the point that by the end of her student teaching, I would put anybody in her classroom. That defies absolutely everything in the literature about how beliefs are supposed to work and how slow they are to change. And to this day, I don't quite have her figured out. But I wrote an article, and this is like well over a decade ago and this article still isn't published. Um, <laughs> someday, someday. Not that that's anybody's fault but mine. Um, it's been rejected several times. <laughs> I wrote one of the versions of this article and I called her and said hey would you be willing to read this and give me some feedback and she read the whole thing 40 pages of it 
And we sat in her living room for two hours and I recorded a conversation between us talking about that paper and in the process of that, her reflecting back several years at that point on what she was thinking as a pre-service teacher and how her thinking evolved over time. And that is absolutely my favorite piece of data that I've ever gathered in my career, and someday it will see the light of day. <laughs> but this idea of sharing my data analysis with participants, again, I don't do this all the time, but it's respecting my participants and their ability to make some sense of what they're doing and help me make sense of what they're doing. Here's something that, um, this was actually an idea that David Stinson gave me when he was uh, working with me on a project when he was a doctoral student. We actually went into the literature and got some articles that people had written about pre-service teachers and their practices in the classroom. And we didn't have them read the literature review and the methods and the theoretical framework, but we had them read the results in the discussion and said to pre-service teachers, what do you think of this? Does this resonate with your experience? What matches, what doesn't match? How does this happen? And it was my, I will admit that I was skeptical when David first suggested it. I thought, asking pre-service teachers to read the research literature, I'm not sure that's a good idea. They loved it. They enjoyed it and they were, it gave them a way to say, okay, I can see how people would say that, but that's not really what went on for me. For me, it was like this. It gave them some language to talk about what they were doing. Again, it was part of being curious and intellectually humble and saying, I don't know everything there is to know about what this experience is like for you. Here's another explanation of it. Use that as a springboard to tell me more about your experience. Presentations are another place that I try to be thoughtful about how I am presenting my data and presenting results. Yesterday, actually, I had a, another thought. I was in a session where somebody was sharing pre-service teacher work, methods work, not mathematical work, but methods, ideas, reactions to watching some video clips. And I heard, as people were discussing this pre-service teacher work, what I think could probably qualify as some teacher bashing. And what it made me think is, when I'm presenting pre-service teacher's work, how might I frame my questions differently to lead to a different kind of conversation about what people are looking at? So that one's still a work in progress in terms of thinking about it. And then the last one I'll mention in terms of research is working with doctoral students as they shape their research questions, they design their studies, they analyze their data, and they write it up. I try to help them take on that posture of curiosity and intellectual humility as well so that the field continues to start taking that posture. So I'm going to give you three minutes again to talk to the people around you about your thoughts about how this respect for teachers might play out in your research or your scholarship, whatever that means for you in your context. I'm going to move to talking about how this commitment might play out in service. And here's where I tell you the story of my fairly recent downfall. So the first way that I think about this commitment playing out in terms of service is in conducting professional learning with teachers. An ideal implementation of this commitment would be to say that I don't do professional learning, that teachers haven't been a part of the needs assessment and part of helping at some level design what it is they, they want and need in the professional development. So 
my recent example of where I completely did not honor this commitment was about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, our university system put money on the table, million dollars basically over three years, for STEM education. All you had to do was write the proposal and you would get the money. So our Office of STEM Education wanted that money. You had to meet three goals. One was about STEM courses in introductory biology, introductory mathematics, introductory engineering courses, reducing the rate of students getting Ds, Fs, and withdrawing, making more active learning in the classroom, using peer learning assistance, great. The other two goals, and you had to meet all three goals in order to apply for money. The other two goals had to do with pre-service teacher education and K-12 student education via their teachers. And of course, this came out, the RFP came out with a really short time frame to turn it around and at the worst possible time of the year for classroom teachers in May when they're busy doing other things. So being a good little administrator who wanted to play ball with other people on campus, what did I do? I went and sat in the school district office of our partner school district with which we have a long-standing partnership on which I served in the Board of Education for 12 years and sat there with the associate superintendent for teaching and learning, the secondary mathematics coach, the secondary science coach, their data person, their research and grants person, and the two people from mathematics and science education at UGA who were going to do this work. The district looked at their data, we looked at what the people who were going to do this work had interest in and skills to do, and we designed some stuff to do with teachers. No teachers were consulted, and you can probably guess where this story is going to go. It comes time to roll out this project. We can't get in teachers' classrooms. We can't get teachers to respond to emails. We can't get principals to respond to emails. We can't get this thing off the ground. We eventually get in a couple of schools, we eventually get in a couple of classrooms, but at the end of the year, we have basically nothing to show for this. It gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> I am part of writing an annual report on this project in which we blame the fact that there was heavy administrative turnover in this district. The superintendent turned over, four of the six principals in the schools we were working with turned over, lots of new things going on. Oh, I should mention we did do an evaluation at the end of year one and it was dismal. The teachers were painfully honest about the fact that they saw this as a waste of time. It wasn't meeting their needs. It was one more thing they had to do. They didn't understand why they were doing this. So we wrote the year one report and blamed everybody but ourselves. And that same group of people with the exception of one math ed person who swapped out sat in that very same room again and planned year two without any teachers. Despite the fact that the secondary science coach and the secondary math coach both said, it's clear that we need teachers' voices in this. And we took those evaluation data as teachers' voices. And you can guess how year two went. Year two did have some pockets of, of bright spots. There were some teachers who connected with the mathematics educator and the science educator and had great experiences. It was nowhere near what we proposed. It was nowhere near what was envisioned. We didn't do an evaluation at the end of year two. <laughs> we knew what that was going to say. And at the end of year two, those same people sat in the room again and said, we're pulling the plug on this. Teachers don't want to do this. This is not meeting their needs. It's not based on what the district's doing. It's not connected. We're not 
respecting and honoring the work that teachers do. Teachers actually said to us, do I have to do this? And you know, we were thinking, here, we're bringing you all these resources, human and otherwise, and they were like, do I have to do this? And the answer was no. So year three, fortunately, the university went on with its stuff without the district part. Um, but that's a really recent, really painful example of where I failed to live up to this commitment that I said I had. I let expediency and being a good team player get in the way of what I really believe about mathematics teacher education. So professional learning is a place where this commitment could play out. Reviewing articles, grant proposals, conference proposals is an opportunity to Again, I like to think about curiosity and intellectual humility. I try to ask questions and offer feedback in the form of, have you thought about it this way? What about? As opposed to saying, your teacher bashing, this should not ever see the light of day. But reviewing is a place to offer this perspective. Serving on committees is another place. I've been really fortunate to be on the JRME editorial panel, the Mathematics Teacher Educator editorial panel, various other service opportunities where I've had a chance to give that perspective and ask sometimes where are teachers' voices in all of this. So I'll give you three minutes again to think about service. And service might, in your context, mean institutional service. It might not mean professional service. It might mean institutional service. So take a few minutes and think about how this commitment might play out in service in your context. So as we think about the work that we do as a field at large, one of my thoughts about how we apply this commitment is to think about teachers as our partners. Instead of thinking about teachers as the object of the work we do, thinking about teachers as partners in our teaching, our research, and our service. A second thing that I think we can do is to think about working with our fellow teacher educators. In the PA world, those might be teacher educators in language arts and science and social studies and general curriculum and instruction. The 612 world, it might include mathematicians and statisticians. It might include curriculum directors and coaches and so forth. Because those people can give us some alternative perspectives on our work. I'll give you an example. The early childhood elementary education program that I teach in at the University of Georgia used to have a tradition, and we're trying to bring this back, of our students go through in cohorts of about 25 to 30 students in a cohort. And before the semester starts, all of the faculty who were teaching that cohort get together, share syllabi, share readings, talk about the big ideas that we have, because there's actually a lot of overlap in what we're trying to teach elementary education majors. We look at assignments, we look at readings. Sometimes we make adjustments, sometimes we don't. At least if we're offering conflicting or competing information, we know that we're doing that, and we know how that might be affecting our students' development. But then we usually try to meet again in the middle of the semester and just check in sort of on the group as a whole and on individual students. And I cannot count the number of times over my 20-something year career where I sat in one of those meetings where one of us has singled out a student who we had concerns about, shared those concerns, whatever they were, about the quality of work, about professionalism, about whatever, and some other teacher educator who had them in a different context said, that's not at all my experience with them. Hearing those two pieces of information and then hearing from the other teacher educators and maybe the people who were supervising them in the field, we were able to get a much better picture that challenged the assumptions that any one of us might have made on our own. 
So I think that we can leverage engagement with our teacher education peers, including our partners in mathematics and statistics. And I would, since a couple of my mathematician statistician friends are sitting here, I will mention that we probably ought to quit the teacher bashing of mathematicians and statisticians as well. <laughs> we do our fair share of that. We say that some of them get it and some of them don't. Um, that's a different talk, but I'll just throw that in there. And then I think in, at the level of a field, we all have an individual responsibility to speak up at our own institutions, organizations, conferences, places where we have privilege when we hear teacher bashing and to invite our colleagues to call us on it when we do it. I'm going to talk about AMTE for a second. Specifically, AMTE standards. I think we have to be really careful not to weaponize those standards. By using them as, we can use them as a goal to aspire to, but you can also use them as a yardstick and beat people over the head with it when they fall short of those standards. We can't control what everybody else does with those standards, but we can control what we do with them. We can also control what we publish, conference proposals, position, announce, position statements, and other things that we put out on the web, on social media, and so forth. And then we have influence with other organizations and with policymakers. In the advocacy session this morning, there was a question that was raised that when you compare AMTE to other organizations like NCTM that have a full-time executive director and multiple other full-time staff, officers of the board who are more than volunteers actually have release time to do their work. They can pay lobbyists, they can pay firms in Washington to go to the Hill. What could AMTE possibly do without the resources that something like NCTM has? AMTE sits at the table at the Conference Board of Mathematical Sciences with those roughly 20 other organizations, along with TOTOS and NCTM, and has a voice, in fact, they're the only voices about teachers, and have the opportunity to influence the discourse around teachers and teacher education. So I would argue that AMTE does have an advocacy opportunity, at least in that arena, and probably other places. All right, so if any of what I've said tonight resonates with you, I hope that you'll pick one piece of your practice as a teacher educator and think about how a commitment to respecting teachers and seeing it, teachers as sense makers might play out in that aspect of your practice. What do you want to be mindful about? What do you want to be curious about? What might you want to change? And as we work together to improve mathematics, teaching, and learning, I wish for all of us curiosity, intellectual humility, some flexibility, and some critical friends to help us along the path. Thank you.